Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FBI director on defense. The lead starts right now. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not and has the no oh, interest in you won't protecting the question. anyone. The FBI Christopher Ray on the Hill questioned by some of his harshest Republican critics. I'm going to talk to one Republican member calling for a culture shift at the FBI and more promises for Ukraine. But President Zelensky is not getting the one thing he really wanted, entry into NATO. Why not? Plus, taxpayer beware. It's not just Uncle Sam getting your financial data. The alarming report today revealing who else can see your most sensitive tax information. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and that explosive and combative hearing on Capitol Hill with FBI Director Christopher Wray. Today, House Republicans unleashed a tsunami of accusations and attacks against the FBI and its Trump-appointed director, Christopher Wray, accusing Wray of weaponizing the Bureau against conservatives, lambasting the Bureau's participation in last year's search of Trump's Florida home. American speech is censored. Parents are called terrorists. Catholics are called radicals. And I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign or the raiding of a former president's home. Ray also today making a stunning announcement about the unprecedented number of threats and attacks against the Bureau since the August search of Mar-a-Lago, revealing that threats against federal law enforcement have gotten so bad. Since then, he has now created a unit solely focused on protecting FBI personnel. Democrats in the House used their time today to question Ray about Trump's involvement in the January 6th attack and his mishandling of classified documents, according to the prosecutor, while also accusing their Republican colleagues of holding today's hearing as part of an effort to protect Donald Trump. House Republicans will attack the FBI for having had the audacity to treat Donald Trump like any other citizen. The strategy is simple, really. When in doubt, Chairman Jordan investigates the investigators. The FBI dared to hold Trump accountable, So Republicans must discredit the FBI at all costs. Director Ray also called accusations from some that the FBI was involved in the January 6th insurrection, quote, ludicrous. CNN's Sarah Murray is digging into this contentious and confrontational hearing. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Nadler, members of the committee. FBI Director Christopher Ray. Weighing in on some of the most hot-button political investigations in testimony on Capitol Hill. Critiquing former President Donald Trump's sloppy retention of classified documents. I don't want to be commenting on the pending case, but I will say that there are specific rules about where to store classified information and that those need to be stored in a SCIF, a secure compartmentalized information facility. And uh, in my experience, ballrooms, bathrooms, and bedrooms are not SCIFs. Insisting in the wake of Hunter Biden's plea deal on tax charges that the Bureau is not protecting the Biden family. 
Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does you won't not the has no oh, hold interest on. You won't in protecting answer the question anyone about whether or not that And disavowing some of the behavior outlined in special counsel John Durham's probe, which documented missteps by the FBI in its investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign's ties with Russia. I consider the conduct that was described in the Durham report as totally unacceptable and unrepresentative of what I see from the FBI every day and must never be allowed to happen again. Ray, however, stood by the search at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. I would not call it a raid. I would call it the execution of a lawful search warrant. And defended the FBI's rank and file amid a wave of threats in the wake of that search. We did uh, stand up a whole dedicated unit to focus uh, on threats to FBI uh, uh, individuals, FBI employees and FBI facilities because of the uptick that we saw uh, over that time period. Ray facing off against some of his toughest congressional critics on the House Judiciary Committee, where Republicans have threatened to slash the Bureau's budget and accused FBI leadership of political bias. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. Respectfully, Congressman, in your home state of Florida, the number of people applying to come work for us and devote their lives working for us is over up over 100 percent. We're deeply proud of them and they deserve better than you. All as Democrats took shots at their GOP colleagues. We are here today because MAGA Republicans will do anything to protect Donald Trump, their savior, no matter how unfounded or dangerous it may be to do so. Now, Ray also told the panel that the notion that he is biased against conservatives was insane to him, given his own personal background. He's a registered Republican, and he was, again, appointed to this job by Republican President Donald Trump, Jake. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with a decorated former FBI agent who served under FBI directors uh, James Comey and Robert Mueller, and that's CNN's Josh Campbell. Josh, uh, Director Ray mentioned increased threats against FBI personnel in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago search, but uh, the FBI is not only concerned about the agents involved in, in that search, are they? No. In fact, Ray is concerned about all 38,000 FBI employees and whether they might actually be targets. And that's why he mentioned the Bureau standing up this unit to guard against threats against FBI employees. We know, Jake, that this is not just an academic exercise, that words actually matter, particularly the former president, Donald Trump, uh, you know, who has accused the FBI of all kinds of wrongdoing pertaining to that search at Mar-a-Lago. We know that after those comments and after Trump, you know, accused them of malfeasance, a Trump supporter actually went and attacked an FBI field office in Cincinnati. And so we see just how real the issue is for FBI employees, having them on guard because of these words. Now, you know, throughout this hearing, we saw Ray trying to bat down a number of conspiracy theories. Uh, there was an exchange I want you to hear that happened just a few moments ago where this was a Republican member uh, essentially insisting that the FBI was some kind of inside job in the January 6th uh, attack. Now, the member's time had, had expired, but Ray felt a need to uh, jump in and, and make sure his voice was known and heard. Have a listen. If you are suggesting that the violence that at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources or FBI agents, the answer is no, it was not. And to suggest otherwise is a disservice to our hardworking, dedicated law enforcement profession. Now, there have been actual, you know, cases of wrongdoing by FBI employees. But, you know, throughout this hearing, we've seen a number of these conspiracy theories uh, being put out there. And as the FBI and other security experts say, some of them have real consequences if they actually lead people to act with violence.
All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman uh, Ken Buck of Colorado. He sits on the House Judiciary Committee, participated in the hearing. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So you said uh, kind of tongue in cheek that you hope FBI Director Ray doesn't change his party affiliation after today's hearing. He, he's a registered Republican. Um, do you think that the FBI is pursuing conservatives unfairly? No, I don't believe that. I, I think uh, Director Ray is a good person. I, I think that he is doing his very best to make sure that the FBI follows the evidence. And, and I think that the FBI is uh, largely treated unfairly in, in how it has been perceived and, and portrayed uh, in, in the public. So um, some of your Republican colleagues are talking about using the power of the purse to, to punish the FBI uh, and the Department of Justice by, by eliminating or reducing significantly uh, their budget. Politico reported that you said in a closed-door meeting you cautioned your colleagues to be careful on this front and that you, quote, are not in favor of cutting DOJ. Um, tell us why you think it would be a mistake for them to do so. Well, first of all, uh, we have used the defund the police uh, movement against the Democrats politically. Uh, the American public is not in favor of defunding the police in large cities, and they're not in favor of defunding a federal agency like the FBI. And so I was uh, just counseling my, my friends and colleagues in the Republican Party to be very careful in the language they use. Obviously, if the FBI has inefficient programs or wasteful programs, absolutely, we should look at reducing that as part of a deficit reduction program. But to target the FBI as punishment is absurd. They are in charge of and leading the effort on uh, counterterrorism efforts, counterintelligence, Chinese and Russian spies. They're leading the effort on white-collar crime, on human trafficking. Uh, to, to say that we're going to cut an agency that, that performs such a vital function in the United States government is, is really irresponsible. We heard Director Ray say today uh, that the FBI has created a unit to focus on threats to FBI agents and facilities. Um, do you think the political attacks are driving these threats and causing this, this step? I don't think there's any doubt that, that people who are unstable hear information, largely uh, incomplete and, and uh, uninformed information, that will drive people, again, who are not balanced to do crazy things. And, and I uh, uh, absolutely am, am uh, uh, I, I think that the director has done the right thing by setting up a, a unit to protect uh, FBI employees, not just agents, but all employees um, at the FBI. Uh, it may very well be the result of irresponsible rhetoric that has caused uh, this backlash against the FBI. Hunter Biden, the president's son, was a frequent subject of today's hearing. Um, we've learned that a man named Gal Luft, who's been promoted as a potential key witness by congressional Republicans, who allegedly has damning information against the president's son, we've learned that he was indicted this week on serious charges from arms trafficking to sanctions violations to acting as an unregistered agent for China. Uh, Congressman James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, responded, quote, he may be a bad dude, referring to this alleged whistleblower, but Comer still wants to talk with him. Do you think the FBI targeted this whistleblower inappropriately because of his Hunter Biden claims, or do you think he's potentially a criminal? You know, Jake, I served 25 years in law enforcement. I would be very surprised if the FBI targeted somebody inappropriately. If they targeted them and he uh, has committed crimes, then so be it. Uh, he may still have valuable information, if there is valuable information out there about the Hunter Biden 
uh, investigation, and that should uh, we, we should find out about that, and and uh, that's certainly our duty uh, in oversight to make sure that we are looking at uh, all prosecutions, and, and that we don't have a two-tiered system of justice uh, in this country. But uh, the fact that he is a, a quote-unquote bad dude doesn't mean that he doesn't have valuable information uh, that Congress can look at. Do you worry at all that? the wild allegations made by some of your colleagues and also by former President Trump about the FBI, about the Justice Department, actually hurt those who are credibly trying to investigate Hunter Biden or, or Democrats uh, who may have committed crimes. In other words, it's a boy uh, who cries wolf kind, kind of uh, problem. They, they offer all these conspiracy theories. We actually, by the way, saw this during the Benghazi hearings, right? There were really serious questions about what went wrong in Benghazi, but there were also so many wild accusations that, generally speaking, the American people stopped paying attention. Jake, in my eight years in, in Congress, eight and a half years in Congress, I have heard wild conspiracy theories from both sides. I think it's irresponsible for people because people assume that members of Congress have some kind of inside information. We're not just reading something on the internet and then repeating it, but we're actually, we have some basis in fact for what we believe. I, I have heard some crazy conspiracy theories about Donald Trump, and I've heard some crazy conspiracy theories about uh, the FBI and agencies that investigate Donald Trump. I think it's, it's, it's time that members of Congress act more responsibly and, and that the American public perhaps uh, doesn't necessarily listen to what members of Congress say. Uh, if it sounds crazy, it probably is crazy, and, and I trust law enforcement to do the right thing. Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, thank you so much, sir. Good to see you again. Thank you. This week in 2018, former President Trump stood next to Vladimir thank Putin you. in Helsinki and told the world that he believed Russia's intelligence over the United States. Five years later, President Biden has just landed in the same city. His warning to the world as Putin keeps up his relentless war in Ukraine. Plus, the reported spy operation on the U.S. government led by Chinese hackers. We'll be, we're back in a moment. We're back with our world lead. Moments ago, President Biden arrived in Finland for the final stop of his high stakes overseas trip. But before his flight, President Biden wrapped up meetings at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, by delivering a speech with a pretty clear message to Russian President Vladimir Putin. The U.S.'s commitment to Ukraine will not weaken, he said. As CNN's Arlette Science reports for us now, even Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky declared the summit a, quote, meaningful success. Tonight, President Biden basking in another show of unity for Ukraine. We will not waver. Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. Ukrainian President Zelensky at Biden's side as he tried to ease some of the NATO summit's tension. Your resilience and your resolve has been uh, a model for the whole world to see. And the frustration, I can only imagine. That you, like we say, shoulder to shoulder with us. The U.S. and G7 allies making historic security commitments prepared to help Ukraine for the long haul. We're going to provide security to Ukraine 
for its needs and against any aggression that may occur. Our support will last long into the future. A declaration from the U.S. and G7 pledging unwavering support for Ukraine, with the allies working towards bilateral long-term security commitments to Ukraine, but falling short of establishing concrete security measures, even as Ukraine remains out of the NATO alliance. All our allies agreed Ukraine's future lies in NATO. Zelensky initially rebuked NATO leaders for not setting a timeline for Ukraine's entry. But NATO has removed one significant barrier in the country's path and is ready to work with Kyiv as it makes reforms. I hope we finally have put to bed the notion about whether or not Ukraine is welcome and NATO is going to happen. And as the NATO gathering wrapped, a shift in tone from Zelensky. The outcome of the NATO summit in Vilnius is very much needed and meaningful success for Ukraine. The summit, another test for Biden's push to reinvigorate the NATO alliance, highlighting America's role on the world stage. We face a choice. A choice between a world defined by coercion and exploitation, where might makes right, or a world where we recognize that our own success is bound to the success of others. And sending a direct message to Vladimir Putin. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine, he was betting NATO would break apart. He thought Democratic leaders would be weak, but he thought wrong. Next up for President Biden, a stop in Finland, NATO's newest member. There he will meet with Nordic leaders, including the Prime Minister of Sweden, which will soon be on its way to joining the NATO alliance after Turkey dropped its objections. Both Finland and Sweden had been non-aligned for a very long time, but after Russia's war in Ukraine decided to seek entry into the alliance. Jake. All right, Arlette Signs, thank you so much. In Vilnius, Lithuania, for us. Joining us now to discuss is Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, rather, for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So I understand President Zelensky is being diplomatic, and I get, I get the need for him to be. But was the summit really a, quote, meaningful success for Ukraine if they didn't get a formal invitation to join NATO or even an exact timeline for when it could happen? Um, I think it was, Jake. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, It was because you had unanimous agreement by all of the NATO allies that Ukraine should be a member of NATO. And this is very different from 2008 when the United States government was trying to pressure Germany and France into accepting Ukraine and Republic of Georgia into NATO and they were opposed. And then they put out some language to paper over this difference. This is now real. They all believe that, that Ukraine will be part of NATO. There is, however, of course, disagreement, as you hinted to, towards in your in your question. You know, there's a question of when, um, whether Ukraine is ready today or whether it needs to do more work on its democracy. And so because they couldn't resolve those issues, they went as far as they could, which I think is still a victory for Ukraine. So President Biden uh, has said Ukraine cannot join NATO until the war is over. You say there's merit in inviting Ukraine to join NATO right now. The big holdup on that, according to Republicans that I've talked to who are pretty hawkish and and want Ukraine in NATO, is obviously Article 5. Article 5 of the NATO treaty, an attack on one is an attack on all. So if Ukraine were to join NATO immediately, as you're suggesting should be a, a possibility, doesn't that mean that immediately the United States and all the NATO countries would have to like send in troops to defend Ukraine? 
No, it doesn't, Jake, because you could do it in such a way where you say this only applies to the territory that on the day you sign the agreement, the Ukrainian government controls. So any disputed territory where there's hot war ongoing or where it's occupied by Russia wouldn't wouldn't be covered by this. But then it would deter Russia from taking one more you know, step into Ukraine, into into territory that the Ukrainian government does control. And that would be the idea. And the, the other reason to do it right now would be, frankly, to accelerate the process of getting to peace, because I think the Russians believe, the Kremlin believes that, you know, if this drags on and Ukraine doesn't become a NATO member, the West will get tired because maybe Ukraine won't win um, the war outright. And so they're they're banking on time being on their side, that somehow the support will weaken for for Ukraine. The British Defense Secretary told CNN earlier today that NATO member countries are are struggling to find ways to keep ammunition supplied to Ukraine as this war stretches past 500 days. What happens if the U.S. and other key allies say they can't keep supplying Ukraine with what Ukraine says they need to, to beat back the Russians? Well, I think that we're far from that day when we're going to run out of weapons that we can supply to Ukraine. And we have to make sure that we don't ever reach that day. And the way that we do it is, first of all, open up new categories of weapons that we can give the Ukrainians. We have longer range army artillery, the so-called attackums, that we could provide to the Ukrainians that we, we, the United States, have not done so far. So that's another category of weapons. We also could, frankly, put our defense industry on more of a warlike footing. We haven't done that thus far. Um, it will would be more costly for the United States government, but we could we could ramp it up. Evelyn Farkas, thank you so much. Always good to see you. President uh, presidential candidate Will Hurd, Republican congressman of Texas, is here next. So what would be his strategy to become a front runner in the 2024 race? Let's talk to him about that next. Our politics lead now. Protesters filled the Iowa Capitol rotunda as state lawmakers in that state approved a bill to ban abortions as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. That is, of course, before many women even know they're pregnant. The bill includes exemptions for miscarriages when the life of the mother is threatened and fetal abnormalities that would result in the infant's death. It also includes exceptions for rapes and for incest if those uh, are reported to authorities within a certain number of days. Oftentimes, rapes and victims of rape and incest don't report such things. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now. Jeff, when will the governor, Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, when will she sign this into law? Well, Jake, Governor Kim Reynolds, uh, who called for this special session in the first place, she is behind uh, the uh, support for this. Uh, she's expected to sign this bill into law on Friday, and the law then would take effect immediately unless there is legal action uh, to stop that. And that's exactly what Planned Parenthood of the Heartland, the regional Planned Parenthood operation there, has uh, uh, said it intends to file uh, for legal relief, uh, urging a a judge or a court to stop that, essentially either before it's signed or at the same time it is signed. So we will have to see if that legal action works. But Jake, this is something that is really going back to 2018. In 2018, the Iowa legislature uh, passed and the governor, the same governor signed a bill into law that was blocked by the the court. So this is simply uh, trying to redo that. But of course, a lot has changed since then, state by state across the country. Some 16 states have changed their abortion, 
the abortion laws in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling that Dobbs decision last year. But uh, if she signs it on Friday, as she's expected to do, Jake, this is happening on the same day that most of the Republican presidential field of candidates, with a few exceptions, will be coming into Iowa to speak at an evangelical organization, um, a presidential uh, town hall. So certainly this injects this into the Republican presidential race. And it also could uh, potentially... uh, uh, make some uncomfortable positions for some candidates who have not said if they support a similar six-week ban. Of course, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, he says he does support it. But Donald Trump, uh, Nikki Haley, and others have not been specific about the number of weeks they would support for um, abortion legislation. So certainly this puts the the issue front and center in the Iowa caucuses, Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. With us now to discuss, Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd, a former U.S. congressman, a Republican from Texas. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. So you recently said that if you were elected president, you would support a 15-week ban on abortion nationwide if Congress were to put that in front of you. If a six-week ban, like the one we're seeing here in Iowa and other states like Florida, if that came across your desk, uh, would you sign it? Look, if if a six-week ban came across my desk, that means that Congress was able to pass something like that and that it was being reflective of where the majority of the country is. Um, I I actually think the majority of the country is is around uh, 15 weeks, you know, after the the first trimester. Uh, The other thing that I think we should also be um, talking about is how do we, you know, ensure that we have neonatal health um, at a gold star standard? How do we make sure that maternal health is is the greatest in the world um, with some of these restrictions? The fact that if you're a black woman having a child in the United States of America, uh, the death rates are, are similar in, 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 in countries in, in the developing world. Uh, these are some of the issues um, that we should also be talking about and making sure that we're improving. Do you think legislation like what Governor Reynolds is about to sign into Iowa, like what Governor Abbott signed in Texas, like what Governor DeSantis signed in Florida. Do you think that that will ultimately, because this is, we're talking about six week bans, which um, is really banning most abortions, most abortions, uh, because a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Do you think that that will, uh, regardless of what you feel about the issue of abortion, do you think that that's going to hurt Republicans? I've heard some Republican officials say uh, that they, they really worry about the effect of this on suburban voters, independent voters, et cetera. Sure. Uh, you know, where are the, the you know, the, the GOP and, and one of the reasons that Donald Trump lost in, in, in 2020 is that he wasn't able to grow the GOP into uh, suburban women with a college degree, uh, communities of color, black and brown communities and people under the age of 35. Uh, and then these these uh, types of legislation that are being passed in some of these states are not reflective or not going to to help us in, in those communities. Um, and, and, and that is something that when I talk to, uh, as I've crisscrossed the, the country and, and spending time in New Hampshire, I talk about how do we win elections um, in 2024? How do we uh, beat Joe Biden, whose numbers, whose approval numbers are at the lowest um, they can be? Um, we need to be talking about issues that's gonna help grow the brand um, with, uh, with, with communities across the country. Let's talk about electability. Um, listen to what Governor DeSantis said this week uh, about the Republicans uh, also running for president. There's two candidates that can win the nomination, Trump and me, uh, and I would say that I'm the only one that could win both the nomination and the general election. He is saying he is the only Republican who can beat Biden. Well, what's your response? 
Yeah. Well, I, I wish Ron DeSantis was was more interested in defeating uh, Vladimir Putin rather than trying to target my friends in the LGBTQ community. Uh, I wish he was more focused on uh, the issues of the future, uh, not fighting Cinderella. And this notion that, you know, w- w- what we need to do in the GOP is elect someone who has a chance in November. We already talked about uh, the issues that are eroding his support uh, amongst women. Um, there's issues that are eroding himself, eroding his support amongst the black community and, and the brown community. And we need someone who's talking about the future, uh, not c- crying about the past, and who is focused on our actual enemies, uh, not not trying to make it harder uh, for, for groups in our country uh, to just live their life. In the latest poll, and these polls, I only bring them up because they're going to be used to determine Republican eligibility for debates. In that latest poll, you did not meet the 1% threshold. Now, you're going you're gonna to have an opportunity to perform better in future polls, but you also won't commit to signing the Republican National Committee pledge to back the party's nominee, whoever it is, which is required to step, f- stage, mm-hmm. to step on the stage at the debate. Um, how are you going to get on that debate stage? Sure. Well, well, first off, Jake, I'm I'm working to 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 meet the requirements to be on the debate, and and if any of your viewers uh, want to see a Republican on the debate stage who is more interested in defeating um, Vladimir Putin than than targeting the LGBTQ community or a Republican who actually thinks background checks uh, can help make our our classrooms safer for our kids, or a Republican who's more interested in uniting the country than dividing the country, then go to herdforamerica.com and donate at least uh, $1. Uh, my issue with the pledge is, is very simple. It's, it's not an issue about not supporting the Republican nominee. I'm not going to support Donald Trump, and I can't lie to get access um, to a microphone. I've made it very clear that I can't support Donald Trump. He's a proven loser. He's lost the House in, in 2018. He lost the Senate in the White House in 2020, preventing a red wave from coming. And one of the th- ways that I'm going to um, continue to, to, to improve uh, with communities, I'm spending a lot of time on the ground in, in New Hampshire. I've been in uh, the northern part of the state that no candidates have been to. Uh, I've been to several dozen cities already. And we're going to do what I did when I was in the old 23rd. Uh, nobody thought a black Republican could win in a 72% Latino district, um, and I did it because I outworked our, our, my opponents. I'm going to do the same thing in, in, in New Hampshire and in other states. Um, and, and people are, are interested in craving uh, something new. The fact that seven out of 10 Americans do not want to see Joe Biden on the ballot and six out of 10 Americans do not want to see Donald Trump on the ballot. Nobody wants to see the rematch from hell that looks like it's it, it's it's coming forward. And this notion that uh, this polling is an indication of something that's going to happen in five months or six months, uh, this is not true. But we're just going to we're going to take our message to the streets. You talked about uh, Vladimir Putin a couple times in this interview. Do you think that NATO should admit Ukraine as soon as possible? Or are you more with the program of make a pledge that it will eventually happen, but not until the war is over? Um, If I was a president of the United States, the first thing I would say is as soon the day that hostilities stop in Ukraine, Ukraine will be admitted into NATO. Um, In order to bring that um, that vision uh, to fruition, I would talk and explain that the goal in Ukraine is to help the Ukrainians kick the Russians out of 
all of Ukraine, not just go back to the way things were in February uh, 2022 when the Russians evaded the most recent time. And I'd be working with our allies to make sure that the Ukrainians had all the material, all the equipment they need to do things like establish a no-fly zone um, over their own country. The quicker we help Ukraine win this war, the better it is for everybody else in the country. And I'll be making sure that the defense industrial complex uh, was improving its efficiency and delivering uh, the kind of support that we've already we've already said that we would give the Ukrainians uh, to make sure that they have the tools in order to win this. And why should every American care about this? Because mm-hmm. the United States of America after World War II built an international order that benefits us. And if we don't defend that order, mm. it hurts us. Former Congressman, current Republican presidential candidate, Will Hurd, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Coming up, what the U.S. calls a brazen act by North Korea. We're going to go live to the region, plus the cyber breach of government agencies in the U.S., how the White House says Chinese hackers accessed sensitive U.S. systems. In our tech lead, a lot of questions remaining after Microsoft and the U.S. government revealed that China-based hackers had breached email accounts at two dozen organizations, including U.S. government agencies. Sources telling CNN the State Department and the Commerce Department are on the list, but the other targets are now undisclosed as of now. According to Microsoft, China-based hackers used a stolen sign-in key to get into unclassified email accounts beginning in mid-May. They're now blocked, we're told. We're also told the problem was first detected at the U.S. State Department and reported to Microsoft. But no one, no one is saying exactly who got hit or how much is compromised. World leaders at the NATO summit had to confront another serious issue today after North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile overnight. The missile has the range to potentially hit the United States. It landed in the waters near Japan after being airborne for 74 minutes longer than the regime's previous tests. CNN's Will Ripley has been to North Korea more than a dozen times. He joins us now live. Will, is this a big advancement for North Korea as that comparison of the time in the air might suggest? Well, certainly that the, the flight time is basically one of the things that analysts use to assess how far uh, a missile can travel. So if you actually look at the map, you know, even though this missile went on what's known as a lofted trajectory, you know, high up into space, then back down to the earth, only traveling about a thousand kilometers distance wise, had that had that lofted trajectory kind of stretched out like this. You basically have not not just the entire mainland United States, but almost the entire world in the potential striking range of this massive missile. I have stood in Pyongyang. I've seen these things roll by. They're huge. Any country that figures out technologically how to get something that big up, you know, and travel that far and that fast, because, of course, it's traveling at supersonic speeds. Uh, it is it is a, a technological marvel that most countries have not achieved. But yet this impoverished North Korea, which is struggling right now with some of the worst food insecurity issues uh, that they've seen since the Great Famine in the 1990s, still they continue to churn out these these launches. And really, it's because Kim Jong-un, he wants to project power. He wants to project power that will protect him, that will protect his legacy, his family dynasty. And of course, a lot of these launches, he's bringing his young daughter alongside Jake, just barely 10 years old. She's already widely seen by many as a possible successor. All right, Will Ripley, thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
Uh, Taxpaying Americans, you're going to want to hear this next report, the unlikely source that may now have shared your most sensitive financial information. Stay with us. In our Money Lead today, three major tax filing websites shared the private data of tens of millions of their customers with tech giants Google and Meta, according to a new congressional report. CNN's Tom Foreman is at the magic wall to explain this to us. Tom, first of all, which companies were sharing this extremely sensitive taxpayer data? Jake, TaxLayer, Tax Act, and H&R Block show up in this report. And if you used one of these at home, no doubt you thought that your information was being kept confidential. And yet now there's information that your income, your refund amount, your marital status, names of dependents, your name, your email, your city, state, zip code, phone number, and gender were among the things that may have been passed on to these great big companies without you knowing it, Jake. Tom, how exactly did this work? Well, what they were using was something called uh, pixel tracking. Pixel tracking. So you as a taxpayer go on to one of these sites and you decide you're going to do your taxes here. As you're doing it, a pixel tracker is basically keeping track of what you're clicking on, what you're doing, what you're filling out. So if you get a form that, for example, indicated you just got married, it would record this. And then it takes that information, and that information, according to this study, was then passed on to these companies. And they, in turn, pass that on to third-party companies, particularly Meta has been targeted in this. And what did the third company do? Well, they, they did exactly what you think with their ads. They reach right back at that taxpayer targeting them with ads and information, knowing how much money they had, what had just happened in their lives, how they could reach them, how they could apply more sales pressure to that person there. One big question in all of this, Jake, is how much of this was a conscious decision made along the way? Because many, many, many companies use pixel trackers just to improve their product in their mind, to say, we want to reach our customers better. And then how much of this was happening automatically? because they're using a product from this company to deal with this taxpayer. That somehow tracks for them, but that tracking gets passed over to them, and they've got it, so they sell stuff back here. And nobody really bothering to say, wait a minute, this is taxpayer data. This is something we're not free to share that way. We may be in violation of laws. We may be sued over it. This is a very, very big deal. And I'll guarantee if you're sitting at home right now wondering if all of your private data was passed through this chain, and came back to you, and you wondered why all those ads were hitting you, I'll guarantee it's a big deal for you. Jake? Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just in, brand new court documents on Rudy Giuliani, the basic act prosecutors say he failed to do. That's coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, more than 200 law enforcement officers are searching right now for an inmate who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison using workout equipment and bed sheets. And now, Pennsylvania police are talking to possible accomplices. Plus, closer to a boiling point, the ocean water around Florida is the warmest it has ever been in recorded history. And scientists are warning that could mean a very dangerous hurricane season to come. And leading this hour, after pleading with NATO allies, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky It's trying to put a positive spin on the lack of a formal invitation into NATO for Ukraine. Instead of that invitation, Zelensky is returning to his war-torn country with assurances about future membership in the alliance and a new promise of additional security guarantees. 
After an hour-long meeting with Zelensky today, President Biden verbally reassured Ukraine's leader that U.S. support is not going anywhere. Zelensky will keep pushing, of course, for support while his troops are in the midst of, as Biden puts it, a hard slog. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in Ukraine, where Russia has continued attacking its neighbor while world leaders were meeting in Lithuania. Tonight, President Joe Biden delivering a rallying cry for Ukraine, now almost 17 months into its war with Russia. Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. The speech in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, coming at the end of a dramatic and sometimes heated two days of discussions over Ukraine's future within the NATO alliance. It's going to happen. We're moving, you're all moving in the right direction. I think it's just a matter of uh, getting by the next few months here. Presidents Biden and Volodymyr Zelensky all praise and thanks closing out the NATO summit, despite Ukraine coming away without the biggest ticket item it had hoped for, a concrete path to NATO membership. Zelensky had come into the summit blasting the lack of a membership timeline as unprecedented and absurd. On Wednesday, he took a softer tone, arguing the summit was a success because of the firm promise of an eventual invitation and security guarantees in the meantime. The outcome of the NATO summit in Vilnius is very much needed and meaningful success for Ukraine. And I'm grateful to all leaders in NATO countries for very practical and unprecedented support. While the U.S. and others argue that NATO membership for Ukraine is impossible while a war is raging, the White House advertised a major announcement of long-term pledges from G7 countries, including more security aid, economic support, help with recovering from the Russian onslaught, and with democratic reforms. It has made substantial progress along the reform path, and there are more steps to take. So what the alliance said with one voice last night was we look forward to a future with Ukraine and NATO. We will work with Ukraine along the pathway to NATO, but we are not prepared to invite Ukraine today. In the short term, a slew of countries promised hundreds more millions of dollars in weapons, long-range missiles from France, more Patriot missile launchers from Germany, and armored vehicles from Australia and Great Britain, among many other items. Ukraine also celebrated a so-called F-16 coalition of 11 NATO countries, with pilot training beginning as soon as August, hoping to have U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets in the skies by early next year, though no country has yet pledged the aircraft. We need to keep up and further expand our support to help Ukraine liberate its land and deter future Russian uh, aggression. The war taking no pause as the leaders met. Ukrainian authorities say 18 people, including six children, were injured Wednesday in the southern city of Zaporizhia by an unidentified hostile aerial object. While earlier in the day, Ukrainian air defenses repelled Russian bombardment on the capital, Kyiv, for the second night in a row. And Jake, as Russia continues to carry out attacks, or at least tries to, all across Ukraine, the Kremlin has responded angrily to what Ukraine got at this NATO conference, namely those long-term security guarantees saying that they would encroach on Russian security and could lead to what they called extremely dangerous consequences. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss this New military aid and much more. Former Secretary of Defense and CIA Director under President Obama, Leon Panetta. Secretary Panetta, 
Good to see you. So Russia was very likely listening to President Biden's speech to NATO today. How do you think Putin received, interpreted what Biden had to say? I think there's no other interpretation that Putin could come to, but that uh, his whole idea that somehow he can prolong this war and break the will of the United States and our allies is going nowhere. That in fact, what he is doing is making NATO and the United States even more unified. It's actually empowering NATO. We're now adding both Finland and Sweden to their membership. The bottom line is that uh, Putin understands that he's losing this war. And this meeting in these last few days only confirmed why he's losing that war. So today, uh, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, pledged to to be there for Ukraine, even if this ends up being a drawn out, quote, war of attrition. Uh, We should note the British defense minister, Ben Wallace, seemed to have a less positive outlook. He told CNN that NATO countries are right now struggling to keep up with the massive amount of ammunition that Ukraine is burning through and defending itself. How does NATO keep the weapons flowing for the long haul if that is NATO's goal? That's a, that's a fundamental responsibility of uh, NATO and the United States is to be able to maintain the supplies that Ukraine needs in order to ultimately win this war. Uh, and uh, the fact is that I understand why the president uh, made the decision uh, with regards to uh, uh, the munitions that uh, we're sending, because frankly, they're firing artillery rounds thousands each day and they're running out of 155s. Uh, We have got to be able to develop an industrial base uh, and a relationship with our allies that makes sure we're able to provide the necessary weapons. If there's any gap here, the Russians will take advantage of it. And that's something we cannot afford to allow to happen. So 11 NATO countries, not including the U.S., we should note, but 11 NATO countries just agreed on an F-16 fighter jet training program for Ukrainian pilots. But, but we, we need to note no country has actually provided F-16 fighter jets uh, for the Ukrainians. How close do you think the U.S. is when it comes to providing these fighter jets one way or another? You know, Jake, uh, I think we have to be be realistic about this uh, with these F-16s. So this is this is not just a Piper Cub airplane. Uh, F-16 is a pretty sophisticated aircraft. Uh, you've got to train the pilots. They've got to understand what they're doing uh, in these complicated uh, systems that uh, are part of the F-16. We've got to be able to provide maintenance in order to keep these planes in the air. Uh, this is a long-term affair. Uh, and so it seems to me, I know we've started the training, process, but I don't see us uh, being able to get Ukraine to put F-16s in the air until the latter part of this year. And yet it seems it was part of the deal to get Turkey to uh, agree to let Sweden into NATO. The Biden administration has agreed to give Turkey F-16s. No, quote, caveats or conditions, as the White House put it. Um, And this is as lawmakers, such as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, raised concerns about Turkey's record when it comes to human rights abuses. What do you make of that? Hey, you know, uh, (laughs) you got to look at results uh, when it comes to foreign policy. And if you can make a deal 
that allows Sweden to be able to come into NATO. And, and I understand uh, that uh, it's going to involve probably F-16s. It may involve some other systems as well. But if you can cut that deal, the fact is uh, it puts us in a much better position in terms of a unified NATO. Uh, you now have Finland and Sweden, two countries that uh, almost adjoin uh, Russia. Uh, let me tell you, that sends one hell of a signal to Putin that, uh, that NATO represents for him the kind of threat he was trying to avoid. So I, I don't blame the president for making that deal. So on a separate question, uh, but put on your secretary of defense hat for us, if you would. Um, we've been hearing from senators on both sides of the aisle uh, today objecting to Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's one-man hold on all these military nominations and promotions, holding up all the promotions for flag officers and more. All of these, by the way, non-political positions. How does this affect military readiness? It has a, a hell of an impact on military readiness because, uh, you know, there's almost uh, something like 200 positions that are being held up here, not to mention chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not to mention uh, the, uh, the new chief for the Marines. Uh, the reality is if we don't put key people in those positions, uh, it's gonna undermine our readiness. It's gonna undermine our ability to be able to quickly respond. You can't have acting people in these positions because they don't carry the authority they need in order to make key decisions. And so what, uh, what Tuberville is doing here is weakening the United States in terms of our military readiness. Doesn't make any sense. If he's got a policy complaint, take it up in the defense authorization bill. Take it up in the appropriations process. But for goodness sakes, allow these people to be able to assume their responsible positions uh, in our military. Former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, thanks so much to you. Really appreciate your time. This gives the name Miami Heat a whole new meeting. The ocean water around Florida is more than 90 degrees right now. That could be horrible news when it comes to hurricane season. And then remember all those election lies told and promoted by Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani's allies? It turns out Rudy and his team skipped some important steps. I'll explain ahead. In our national lead, more than 60 million Americans are under extreme heat alerts right now with soaring temperatures from coast to coast. Places such as Los Angeles in the high 80s, cities such as Phoenix and El Paso are reaching triple digits. In Florida, the heat is pushing water temperatures to unprecedented highs. CNN's Derek Van Dam is in Virginia Key, Florida, near Miami. Derek, just how warm is the ocean water and, and what does that mean when it comes to hurricane season? Yeah, good evening, Jake. You know, ocean temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico and off the Florida coast have never been this hot since satellites began keeping track of the data. One buoy approached 97 degrees. We actually uh, visited a NOAA sea surface temperature monitoring station earlier today, and they broke a record today, but also yesterday as well. Now, the problem is that it's occurring so early in the season. It's mid-July, the hottest months of the summer, are still to come. That is obviously a concern for uh, the habitats that uh, surround this area. Now, to answer your questions about the hurricanes, how does warm temperatures impact it? Well, Colorado State already upping the number of hurricanes they anticipate this season just due to the warm temperatures. 
What kind of impact could these warm waters have on the crucial coral reef off the coast of Florida, which is so important uh, to uh, Florida and to marine wildlife? Yeah, 100 percent. It's such a fragile ecosystem. And to help me answer that question, I actually have Dr. Uh, Liv Williamson. She is a reef restoration expert here. And uh, we know that uh, heat is bad for corals, but you guys are working on a strategy here. Can you explain what you've got? Absolutely. So here at the Rosensteel School at the University of Miami, we're working on lots of different strategies to try to increase the heat tolerance of our corals. There are different ways that you can do that. So one of the problems with corals, the reason that they bleach is because they have a symbiotic relationship with algae. And what we're doing is priming them with a more heat tolerant type of algae that actually raises their bleaching threshold. That is to say, allows them to withstand more and more and more heat stress while remaining relatively healthy. And then another strategy that we're working on is actually doing lots of experiments to identify parents that are genetically more heat tolerant and using those parents to breed together and create new generations of corals that also have that heat tolerance and can survive, hopefully, these higher temperatures that we're seeing more frequently now. Yeah, it's very fitting considering this marine heat wave that we have going on right now. Tell me, how can this uh, coral actually protect the Florida coastline from storm surge and hurricanes? Imagine it or not, coral reefs are actually really key for coastline protection. As you can see, they have this amazing three-dimensional structure. And that structure is key for breaking wave energy. It actually creates a lot of friction as that water moves over it. And that protects whatever's behind it, whether that's our beaches, our coastal properties, from flooding and erosion, especially in the case of these storms. Can I hold it? Absolutely. Jake, you may be looking at the next climate crisis solution right here. That's very depressing. Derek Van Dam, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, with us now to discuss is Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz from Florida. He's also the former director of the Florida Division of Emergency uh, Management. Uh, Congressman Moskowitz, good to see you. So when it comes to this pending hurricane season um, and the fact that it might be worse because of these warmer waters, um, you've teamed up with Florida Republican senators, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, both Republicans, on the Disaster Relief Fund Replenishment Act. Uh, which will ensure that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has all the resources it needs to continue providing disaster relief. I, I want to ask you, I mean, that's, that's great for a bipartisan accomplishment there. Have you ever talked to them about legislative action to combat climate change? Yeah, thanks, Jake. I, I appreciate you talking about this. Well, first of all, the reason this is so important is because we're getting into a hurricane season. We're talking about the waters being warmer than ever. We're talking about, you know, record temperatures. And so I'm extremely worried about stronger storms, storms happening in areas perhaps that don't have the infrastructure or the, or the, the ability to respond like some areas like in Florida that are more used to it. And so FEMA is going to run out of money. The, the disaster relief fund is going to run out of money in August. And so that, that will impact our ability to respond, our ability to recover. It'll impact reimbursement to local governments that, that can't afford it. And that's why I teamed up with them to get ahead of this, to be proactive. We shouldn't have to do a supplemental after the event. We should be doing it before. So look, I, I've talked to Senator Rubio and, and Senator Scott, obviously, when I was the director of emergency management, talked to them you know, uh, uh, about climate change. Obviously, we have disagreements on that. And so what I'm trying to focus on now is I'm trying to focus on ways in which we make sure that cities and counties have the resources to not just respond, life-saving measures to respond, but then also recover. Because obviously, as those resources get held up, we elongate the period for these communities to recover. Florida is one of the hardest hit states right now when it comes to climate change and the devastating impact we're, we're seeing. What, 
we're getting away from Rubio and Scott specifically, but when you talk to Republican colleagues where you, where you have disagreements with them, I mean, do they not believe what's going on right in front of their eyes? Yeah, some, sometimes, Jake, obviously. Uh, what they'll believe when the cameras are off versus when the cameras are on uh, are sometimes different. What, what I'm focused on is trying to not argue with them why it's happening, but I am trying to focus on to, to start working on fixing it. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's the point here is to just solve the problem and to help mitigate the issue. Everything we do now, every investment we make helps with mitigation. Uh, and so, you know, that's what I'm, I'm trying to work with them on. And, and that's what we're doing here with, with trying to get the money back in the DRF. The idea that FEMA could run out of money in the middle of hurricane season in the greatest country in the world sounds kind of ridiculous. We should start being proactive and not just reactive. And we should do that with climate change, Jake. We should be proactive. We, yeah. we, we know we can right. hard, harden structures, we can raise roads, we can build seawalls, and we can change our behavior. And so we should be doing all of that all across the board. Yeah, don't tell me. Tell your Republican friends. Today, Farmers Insurance said it's going to stop offering insurance policies in Florida, home insurance, auto insurance, because of your, stay, your state's proneness to hurricanes. Um, what kind of impact is that going to have? Well, here's a good example, right? So the insurance industry is abandoning Florida. Why is that happening? Because, you know, the, the algorithms are telling them that Florida is, is not a good investment. My own insurance company dropped me about a year ago, and they sent me a letter saying, the reason we're not renewing your insurance is because you're prone to hurricanes. And I said to myself, when they, when they insured me, I was prone to hurricanes. I mean, did they not hear of Hurricanes Wilma and Matthew uh, and, and Andrew uh, and, and Michael and all these other hurricanes when they insured me? But, but look, they've made a decision now that the algorithms, you know, the computers are blinking red and that Florida is not a good investment. I, I got to be honest, obviously, you know, the, the folks in, in Tallahassee uh, in the legislature and the Senate, they, they passed some bills this year dealing with uh, with the lawyers and with legal changes. But they, they did not do anything to really address the rising cost uh, of of insurance and housing prices in Florida. Generation Z is never going to forgive us. Florida Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thank you so much. Democratic Senator okay. Joe Manchin is paying a visit to New Hampshire. Should President Biden be worried? In our Law and Justice lead, you know those examples of election fraud promoted by Rudy Giuliani and others in Trump's orbit? The crazy ones, no facts. Brand new court documents show that Giuliani didn't even bother to vet the claims that he and his colleagues were touting. This is the same Rudy Giuliani who also apparently did not find it necessary to vet the venue where he spread those election fraud claims in 2020. Instead of ending up at the Four Seasons in Center City, Philadelphia, they, of course, ended up at Four Seasons Total Landscaping right next to the porn shop across from the crematorium just north of the Tacony Palmyra Bridge. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, two Georgia election workers brought this defamation lawsuit against Mr. Giuliani. What exactly do these court documents reveal? Well, Jake, not surprisingly, there was uh, very little proof to these claims of the, that there, were vo there, there was vote fraud in Georgia. And it seems uh, Giuliani and the team around him weren't interested in trying to vet any of these claims, despite their effort to try to uh, make sure everyone knew about them. And so uh, this is in a, in a defamation lawsuit that was brought by uh, two Georgia uh, elections workers, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Uh, they're suing uh, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and others for defamation 
for essentially accusing them of committing crimes uh, in committing vote fraud uh, after the election. And this is a, a, an example uh, of exactly what you're talking about. This is an, a text message from uh, Boris Epstein, who was an ab advisor to former President Trump. And this is what he says. Urgent POTUS request. Uh, need best examples of election fraud that we've alleged that's super, super easy to explain. Uh, this is what uh, Epstein says. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be proven, but does need to be easy to understand. Is there any sort of greatest hits clearinghouse that anyone has for best examples? Again, this is a, a, a text message from Boris Epstein in which he's just asking for anything, anything that they can offer up. And it doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be proven just something that they can easily put out. And that's exactly what they ended up doing in the, in the aftermath of, of 2020 election, uh, Jake, as they were trying to give some kind of proof that there was this fraud that they were claiming and why uh, Congress needed to intervene. Jake? Evan Perez, thank you so much. And our politics lead, the top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, is warning that a key must-pass defense policy bill could collapse amid infighting between hardliners and leadership in the House Republican conference. This comes as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is scrambling to find a path forward to pass this critical legislation. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, not that long ago, passing this legislation would have been relatively easy, even bipartisan. What are you learning about where this bill stands now. Yeah, the Republican leadership is moving behind the scenes to try to fend off a range of hot-button issues that members on their far right are trying to add to this bill on dealing with a wide range of social policy issues. One issue that is that they're grappling with right now is abortion. There's a Pentagon abortion policy that reimburses service members who travel out of state to have abortion procedures done. That is something that Republican hardliners are pushing to have an amendment to strike. But if they go that far, one Republican congresswoman is warning her party could face a political backlash. We're going to continue to have amendments and bills that are not going to be compassionate to women, and we're going to lose seats, we're going to lose races because of this. But to dive the Pentagon into such a political issue, uh, I think was wholly unnecessary. We asked the Pentagon not to do this because we warned them it would politicize the defense bill process. A small group of people isn't just saying we want to vote on things that we care about. They want to say, if we don't get what we want, we'll tear the whole thing down. Are you concerned this bill might not pass? Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's more likely than not right now that it won't pass. And that warning coming from Adam Smith, who is the top Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee, someone who drafted the bipartisan bill that emerged from the committee, but warning there that Democratic support is at risk. And Democratic support will be critical. But if the issues involving abortion and others get added to the bill, he's saying Democratic support won't be there, which means the bill may not pass. Jake. Manu, well, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, he's traveling to New Hampshire for an event with the group no labels. That's a group that, that gained ballot access to run a candidate in next year's presidential election. So Manchin doing that is fueling speculation that he might run on this no labels ticket. You, you caught up with him earlier today. I'm sure you asked him about it. What did he say? Yeah, he downplayed the idea that this is all about running for president or seeking a third-party bid that could upset Joe Biden's effort to run for the White House. But as he has done from time, time and again, Jake, he would not rule it out. No, no, this is nothing about a third party. This is not about running about any office at all. It's about a dialogue for common sense, which is very hard to have here. If 
finding kind of commonality. So you're not, are you ruling out a third-party bid? Oh, I've never ruled out anything or ruled in anything. I, I'm, I'm just, this is just strictly a conference that we're having common sense. And there's still a major question here in the Senate, Jake, about whether Joe Manchin will run for re-election for a seat in West Virginia. If he decides not to run, that would almost certainly give Republicans a major, major pickup opportunity. If he does run, Republicans could still potentially pick it up, although it would be much harder. So a lot of questions about Joe Manchin's future. The White House, of course, watching this very closely to see if that could upset the president's re-election bid. Jake. Not ruling it in, not ruling it out. Interesting. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's talk about all this with former South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers, along with former Trump campaign advisor in 2016, uh, David Urban. They're both CNN political commentators. Uh, Bakari, uh, Senator Manchin says this New Hampshire appearance is not necessarily about running as a third party candidate, but you heard the language. He's not ruling it in. He's not ruling it out. What do you think? How concerned should Biden be? Well, I think the Democratic Party and Joe Biden should be extremely concerned, but this is really just an exercise in futility. This is an exercise in arrogance. This is an exercise in a false sense of self. Many of these individuals who are running in third parties, including Senator Manchin, I mean, we have a big tent. We want Senator Manchin to be the senator from West Virginia, but actually teasing and wanting people to adore you or ridicule you or be a part of this discussion for president of the United States, that it's really only arrogance. Uh, Joe Biden had a successful or has a successful tenure going as president. I think everybody should get behind him and support him. Uh, the, the Joe Manchins, the Robert F. Kennedy Juniors, the Cornell West, they're all in the same bucket. And they are just running either to be here with David and I as political commentators or to try to find some exit ramp. David, um, Democrats have been worried for quite some time about the potential for this group, No Labels, to play a spoiler role in 2024, splitting the Democratic vote, even just enough of the Democratic vote. Let's say they take 5% of it for Manchin if he runs, uh, and which would hand the election theoretically to Trump or DeSantis. Um, former Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, David, told The Washington Post, that that concern is much ado about nothing. He said, quote, the last thing that this group wants to be wants to do is be known as the group that elected Donald Trump. And I just scratched my head at the Democrats having their hair on fire about this. What do you think? Yeah, listen, I, I, I don't think that uh, I think Senator Corker may be underestimating uh, the no labels, the, the seriousness of their efforts and undertaking. Um, if, you, if you listen to them talk and, 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 and hear them. Um, you know, they're out to get on every ballot and on every, you know, state in the in the union to have ballot access, which you, as you know, is no mean feat. And um, and, it, and if they do so, it will will it will really impact this election is uh, as you as you noted, um, you know, this is going to be an extremely close race. Uh, let's just assume that it's President uh, Biden versus President Trump. It'll be an extremely close race, one point or two points either direction. And having a third party candidate in the race could affect the outcome either direction, although with Senator Manchin getting in the race, a yep. Democrat, it would probably j- draw more votes from uh, from the Democratic side of the aisle. So um, it, it is a cause for concern if you're on the Democratic ticket. Um, you know, if you're President Trump and, or Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie or anybody else running, um, I, I think you'd be, you know, you're kind of encouraging the run. Bakari, speaking of Chris Christie, he, he's not backing down in directly going after Donald Trump, his former friend. He, he today responded to Trump calling him a, quote, total loser. Uh, Christie wrote, quote, Donnie, you got so much to say. Why don't you say it directly to my face on the debate stage? Or are you a coward, unquote? He's, he's seemingly trying to goad Trump here into showing up 
uh, at the August Fox debate. Um, do you think there's any chance that will work? Um, I'm not sure it's going to work because one of the things Donald Trump wants to do is win. And I'm not sure there's any reason for him really to debate. If I was advising Donald Trump, I would just be like, you know, tweet back at Chris Christie, make a funny meme about whatever and don't debate. The, the fact is, Chris Christie's in this race for one reason, and he's in this race to torpedo Donald Trump. And he's doing a good job at it. He's the only one. Imagine if Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or any of these other individuals who are running for president of the United States had the fortitude of Chris Christie and attacking Donald Trump and standing principally on whatever issues. I mean, the problem with Chris Christie is the fact he left the New Jersey governor's mansion with a 12 percent approval rating thereabout. And so he's not going to be the nominee. But if somebody else had his type of tack uh, or as some people may say, lack thereof, or his ability to punch a bully in the mouth, then maybe this race would be different. But the fact is, on January 16th, the day after King Day, this is going to be Donald Trump versus uh, versus Joe Biden right after the Iowa primary. This race is about over. <laughs> David, do you, do, you, do you agree with that? Do you think that if Ron DeSantis, for example, who is you know second in the race, according to polls, although a very, very far behind second, do you think if he started aggressively going after Donald Trump on, on all the issues that Republicans uh, have concerns about when it comes to him, not the base, but, but other Republicans, such as, you know, his, his behavior leading up to and on January 6th, the national, um, you know, the, the prosecution about the, uh, sec- uh, the, the classified documents and on and on and on. Do you think that would help DeSantis? Look, I, I, I don't, the, the, the governor DeSantis has obviously made a calculated judgment here that he's, and you see this, he's trying to run to, to Donald Trump's right. He's trying to run to the right and more conservative than Donald Trump. So, you know, attacking uh, the former president on certain things. I think that, that a lot of these candidates fear that it's going to alienate the base, right? And then undercut their own ability to, to keep that 20, 30 uh, percent moving forward. I think that uh, what Ron DeSantis and a bunch of other of these folks is, that, that aren't attacking him, as Bakari alludes to, is they're hoping that somehow mm-hmm. that the former president stumbles along the way uh, between here and the Iowa caucuses, and they're kind of left there to take the torch and run across the finish line. And, um, you know, as is often said in politics, you know, hope is not a strategy. And I think that's what they're they're pinning on right now is hope and, and instead of some sort of tactical or strategic uh, plan moving forward. David Urban, Bakari Sellers, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. An update on the manhunt for the inmate in Pennsylvania who used gym equipment and bed sheets to escape from a Pennsylvania prison. Details on new sightings next. Internationally now, day six of an urgent manhunt here in Pennsylvania for an escaped murder suspect. And now authorities say a drone was flying in the area prior to his escape, but it's unclear if that drone is connected to the jailbreak. Michael Burham allegedly climbed workout equipment at the Warren County, Pennsylvania prison gym to break out through a chain link fence on the roof before he shimmied down a rope of bed sheets. Authorities say that Burham is a self-taught survivalist with military experience and that he also might be getting help from someone. CNN's Danny Freeman is at the Warren County prison from which Burham escaped. And Danny, you just heard from Pennsylvania State Police. What did they have to say? 
Well, Jake, like you said, day six of this investigation and manhunt for Michael Byrne, and we're still learning new information. We got some from Pennsylvania uh, State Police in just the past hour or so. First, I want to say that the police have long said, as you mentioned, that they believe that Byrne has been getting help from the outside. Well, today, police confirmed that they're actually interviewing possible accomplices either to this escape or to him being on the run since that escape. The second thing I also want to emphasize is I asked police if there have been any now confirmed sightings of Burham since he escaped. Uh, well, police said out of a number of reported sightings, we believe that many are accurate at this point. And uh, Jake, that's why police say that they still believe that Burham is in this larger northwest Pennsylvania area. And then the final thing, as you mentioned, Jake, police said that a drone actually may have been flying near the jail during this escape. Take a listen to what one of the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant colonels said specifically about this drone aspect. I'm not a big believer in coincidences, but um, what I would tell you is that just prior to the escape, there was a drone flying in that area. It could be that there is a perfectly innocent and reasonable explanation. Uh, it could also be that it was somehow connected to his escape, and uh, we intend to find out more about that. Now, Jake, back out here live, I just want to show you, this is the court building behind me. It includes an actual court, uh, includes admin offices, but it also has the county jail. And this alcove that you're looking at, this is the spot where Burham actually rappelled down using that rope made of bed sheets. A source telling me that Burham then hit the ground here and ran straight past us into this neighborhood. And we'll further say that a county commissioner told us today in a press conference that the whole escape, Jake, took less than a minute. So again, this manhunt still going strong six days after that escape. Jake? Danny, Danny what are authorities saying to local residents? Uh, I, I don't know how dangerous this individual might be. Jake, authorities are saying unequivocally, they say that this man, Michael Burham, is armed and is dangerous. And I should say they're emphasizing even more today that they believe that he has obtained a weapon, though the police wouldn't go into more specific detail about that. But they're saying to the public, while the public should be alert and vigilant, lock their doors, monitor their ring cameras, they are saying that they will catch this man, whatever it takes, through this investigation. Jake? All right, Danny Freeman in Warren, Pennsylvania. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, we're going to go out of this world, way out of this world, to get a one-of-a-kind look at the birth of a star 390 light years away. Stay with us. Our out-of-this-world lead is way out of this world, 390 light years away. In fact, for context, one light year is equivalent to six trillion miles. One light year. This new image from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope shows about 50 young stars, many of them similar in mass to our sun. They are in the Rho Ophiuchi cloud complex. That's a, a part of our universe where new stars are frequently born, ones that could be home to brand new solar systems. Joining us now to discuss is NASA's Dr. Amber Strong. She's a deputy project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope Program. Dr. Strong, this is all just blowing my mind. Uh, tell us more about what we're exactly seeing here. There's a lot of detail and some unusual colors. 
Sure, yeah. I mean, this beautiful new image is really just the latest example of how the Webb telescope is delivering on its promise to reveal the universe in whole new ways. And so what we're seeing here is essentially a stellar nursery, a place where baby stars are being born. Those beautiful red jets that you see there in the image are the telltale signs of these baby stars bursting forth from their cosmic cocoons. And the dust that you see here is really reminiscent of how our own sun was born billions of years ago. And all the dust, similar to what you see here, eventually, of course, formed the planets, including the Earth and us. And I think that's one of the most beautiful kind of concepts in astronomy, this idea that the iron in our blood and the calcium in our bones was forged inside of a star that exploded billions of years ago in a supernova. We're connected to the universe, and these beautiful images really show us that. So the Webb Space Telescope is, is pretty significant for space exploration, even if we're not actually sending people to those places. Absolutely. Yeah, this telescope has completely revolutionized already our understanding of the universe in just this first short year. And of course, yeah, NASA does all these amazing things like sending people to space, sending rovers to Mars, and building these space telescopes is one of the, the crowning achievements of NASA, I think. And, you know, we're here today, we're all celebrating this one-year anniversary of science of these images, but we can't skip over the, the engineering that made this possible. Over two decades of work to build this telescope that is one of the largest engineering challenges that NASA has ever faced. Uh, this telescope was so big it had to unfold in space, and it's been really just a huge, huge technical achievement to get this telescope out there, to get it working, and it's working better than we ever expected or predicted. And Dr. Strawn, I mean, as you know, it's been an incredible year of findings, um, confirming multiple clouds on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Um, what are some of your favorite findings so far? Well, it's, it's hard to pick because <laughs> there have just been so many. But just in this first year, we've been able to look back in time over 13 and a half billion years to see some of the very first galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. Um, as you noted, we've seen, it, we've seen these really incredible clouds on Titan. We've been able to look in detail at the atmospheres of exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars outside of our solar system. And we're all along learning more about our universe in, in scales all the way from our sort of cosmic backyard to the solar system, all the way out to the most distant reaches of space. Dr. Amber Strawn, thank you so much for your expertise and your time today. Really appreciate it. Coming up, CNN's Wolf Blitzer is live in Vilnius, Lithuania for... President Biden's trip. And Wolf, obviously, this was a very important moment for President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Very important for both of these presidents, Jake. And they seem to have patched over some of the problems. Certainly, the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, would have wanted a hard and fast commitment that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. Didn't necessarily get that, although there were some vague assurances that after the war, uh, Ukraine would be able to apply and get into NATO. That's down the road. They would have liked to have done that. Now the U.S., some of the other NATO allies were against that. It's got to be unanimous to get into NATO because if one NATO uh, country is attacked, all the NATO countries are attacked. Of course, President Biden was concerned that if the U.S. were to support Ukraine's in, uh, getting into NATO right now, there, that could lead to a, war, a direct war between the U.S. and Russia, which obviously they want to avoid. Uh, but they did uh, patch up a lot of their differences. And what you, the Ukrainian president was really pleased about was the increased U.S. military assistance. 
that the United States is going to be providing and some of the other uh, NATO allies are going to be providing. So that was very significant. And you've got some special guests joining you coming up in the Situation Room. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, she'll be joining us live uh, in the Situation Room. We'll discuss what's going on as far as NATO is concerned and Ukraine and the offensive, uh, what's happening in U.S.-Ukrainian relations. We also have Gary Kasparov, uh, who's a, a really st- hardline Putin critic. He's going to be joining us. He's got some strong views on what's going on right now. Kasparov, always a good interview. Thank you so much, Wolf. We'll see you in a few minutes. If you haven't heard, I have a brand new thriller. It just came out yesterday. All the Demons Are Here, a wild ride and a murder mystery through a bizarre era for the United States, the 1970s. The book has Evil Knievel, The Death of Elvis, Post-Watergate, Mistrust of Institutions, Cults, Disco, The Summer of Sam, UFO fight, uh, sightings, and much more. I would truly be honored if you would check it out. It's in bookstores now, and you can order it online, of course. Of course. Wolf Blitzer is next in the Situation Room after this quick break. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.